You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Good morning. (laughs) How are you, Jordan? Yeah, I'm doing pretty all right. Yeah. Um, how are you, Annie? I'm good. Had a good week? Um, it's, oh, I've had a good week, but there's uh, been lots of things going on this week. Uh, quite mm. clearly, there were um, a whole lot of marches and there was the uh, IR uh, legislation being um, taken to uh, uh, federal parliament this week, which mm. was uh, pretty um, uh, dire. And uh, also there was a... Uh, uh, break the Poverty Machine um, Action Week, uh, mm. which was uh, focusing on um, uh, the uh, cut in uh, below to below uh, uh, poverty levels of the uh, dole, uh, which they like to call job seeker, yeah. as opposed to the dole. Yeah, look, it, and and that's that's particularly disappointing in and of itself, but at least we saw some very strong action from the Australian Unemployed Workers Union this week, um, really pulling out all the stops for a community day event, as well as the rally which was held on Friday. Um, and I, I hear that you've actually got um, an interview with uh, Kirsten O'Connell of the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. Yeah, well, that um, comes to us from uh, Over the Wall, yeah. which is a fabulous uh, contributor to Solidarity Breakfast. It, mm-hmm. c- it continually keeps a, a finger on the pulse of uh, uh, the issues that relate to people uh, who are uh, uh, being um, attacked mm. by uh, conservative forces mm. on a continuous basis in mm-hmm. this country. Mm-hmm. Yep, and um, then uh, where to from there? Ah, well, um, then we go to the uh, Break the Poverty Machine uh, rally that was held here on Friday in Melbourne, but there were ones all across uh, the country. Uh, There was uh, 150 people gathered at the, uh, or thereabouts, at uh, Treasury Gardens, and uh, then moved on to the Fair Work Commission. So we've got one speech from uh, the gardens and one speech from outside the uh, Fair Work Commission Mm. today. Um, Maybe I can work out a way where people can hear more of those things, but uh, uh, because they're all fascinating, but there was a direct connection made between the uh, lowering of uh, job seeker, the doll, and suppression of wages and how important it is for people who were unemployed and underemployed uh, and on other pensions to be working collaboratively with uh, workers and their unions. 
And speaking of suppression as well, this kind of ties into a related notion that we'll be chatting with David Glanz about, um, where some young environmentalists have been charged with incitement. Gee, haven't we heard this story before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Over, there was there was a, a rally on Friday on the State Library steps, and um, we we immediately kind of jumped on this as uh, an email was circulated around 3CR pretty rapidly. Um, where, yeah, Victoria Police threatened some student climate activists. And, I, you know, for what is going to be a time of very intense rallying and campaigning to make sure that we can actually secure a society that is fairer and more equitable and less impoverished, this is a bit of a... Um, it's a bit of a callback to... Um, Quite a lot of what we've been seeing over the past, you know, well, couple months. Well, it's it's and, it's, uh, it's the yeah. um, uh, the new icing on the uh, militarising of the police cake that mm. the conservative forces have been um, rallying uh, against uh, the pushback by community mm. regarding the misuse of our resources and our, uh, our polis human rights uh, record in this country in relation to people like refugees, workers, um, uh, homeless people, uh, a whole range of things. Mm. And aside from looking back at this incitement case with David Glanz, uh, which we'll be which talking is, about. It's not the, about, uh, yeah. the, uh, just, just to remind you, mm. uh, David, David's going to give us an update on what's happening with Chris Breen's case, yep, yep. the refugee activist. Yep. Um, that's what, uh, it's, it's, I think it's the third time it's been to the magistrate's court and now the <laughs> magistrate's off uh, to deliberate. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I guess the question then remains for these incitement charges, um, where to from here? Because um, we'll be having a chat with uh, Rosalina, who comes to us from XR, and um, to, to have a bit of a chat with us about the Autumn Rebellion. So I'd be really keen to have a chat with her about, you know, what's this going to look like, especially in the sense that XR pro- protests and XR demonstrations are not traditional by any means. So, um, yeah, there's a lot to talk about, real themes of, you know, Oh, and, and and just uh, as an aside, just a, a, a few uh, greens on your plate. Uh, Tasmania's decided that it's going to take uh, uh, laws to uh, they're discussing laws of um, uh, to uh, suppress demonstrators, and uh, it's quite mm. clear that it's related to what's going on in the Tarkine and other parts of Tasmania as yep. they protect their natural uh, environment, mm. um, and. Uh, Apparently, uh, as um, the Bob Brown Foundation has now alerted people to, that uh, uh, the bill before Parliament is likely to amount to a breach of international human rights principles due to the very broad definitions of business access area and prevent, hinder or obstruct. And anybody who's been to a uh, demonstration will know exactly what they mean. Mm. Mm. No, precisely. Uh, all of this is just pointing towards a, a, a greater scrutiny of um, the economy through a stance of law and order and suppression of people. So, yeah, we've got a lot to talk about today. We'll just get into it. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Hello, 
I'm Duncan Graham and this is Over the Wall. Today we begin a conversation with Kirsten O'Connell from the Australian Unemployed Workers Union about increases to job seeker payments and other imminent changes to benefits. And in coming weeks we'll also cover job subsidies and the behaviour and operation of job network providers. This week, the federal government resumed, and one of the bits of legislation before it in this session is the $25 a week rise to the job seeker class of payments. Of course, it's all a matter of perspective, and when I sat down virtually with Kirsten O'Connell from the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, she began by pointing out that that's not an increase at all, it's a cut. So we're not talking about an increase at all. This is absolutely a cut. Right now, people who are on the base rate of JobSeeker are getting about $51 a day. And come 1 April, that's going to go down to $44 a day. And the government trying to sell this as a cut is an absolute sham and it's an insult. People are not going to be better off than they were before COVID in any meaningful way. Firstly, there would have been a CPI increase anyway. So this extra money is not quite as much as it seems. And obviously it's a pittance. Our members have been outraged. They're angry and they're so upset by it that many of them have said they don't want it at all. They would rather stay on $40 a day until they can win a meaningful increase that will actually change their lives. Because this amount isn't going to let people plan for their future, be able to kind of pay bills more sustainably or do anything that will really help them to be in a position to find employment. So that's why we're calling for 80 a day. We know that last year, when it was 80 a day, people reported to us that a lot of their anxiety and their stress lifted and they felt not only happier but healthier. They were able to buy better food, but their mental health improved, most importantly. And that meant people had a better ability to look for work that would be sustainable for them, that would suit their circumstances, because many people are forced to connect with employers or to do activities that don't reflect their ability. For example, if you're being asked to go and stack shelves and you're in your late 50s, you're much more at risk of injury than a younger person. So that really doesn't suit your circumstances. And people had the energy and the time to really look for jobs that might fit them better. And so that's really positive. That's what we want to see. Regardless of what you're doing, everybody deserves to live. And we know that you have to be above the poverty line to do that. The Australian Unemployed Workers Union supports a job seeker rate of $80 a day roughly equivalent to the rate offered when the pandemic first had its impact a year ago, as Kirsten went on to explain. We're asking for the same amount that the government was giving people throughout COVID, and it was clearly an admission by the government that they absolutely know there's no way people can live on $40 a day or $44 a day. They knew that all of those people coming into the system for the first time would need to be at least at the poverty line. And of course, living on the poverty line isn't easy either, particularly for those people who lost work. But we also know that they've then very strategically turned the screws on us by lowering payments slowly. They did a cut in September, a cut on 1 January, and now this final cut on 1 April, and essentially just trying to 
push people and grind people down. And we are just, for each of these cuts, hearing from people who are distressed about whether they're going to have a place to live when the next cut comes in. We already have people in touch with us who have become homeless since the cuts began. The cost of this is immediate and it's obvious and the government knows exactly what they're doing. Next up, I asked Kirsten to give a budgetary rundown of the cost and benefits of the job seeker changes to the Commonwealth Government's $800 billion bottom line. We're not the Parliamentary Budget Office, but we have had a look at this, obviously. We know that it's pretty straightforward. Whatever the government is forecasting in terms of unemployment, it's pretty much the amount of money would be double. So last year, that's what happened. They had budgeted about $10 billion for unemployment payments, and they spent about $20 billion. This year, they're budgeting about the same, and so we would say it's probably about double. But we would also say that we know in countries where unemployment payments are higher, unemployment is lower. And so we would expect that actually we'll end up with lower unemployment and therefore lower expenditure if we actually allow people to live at the poverty line. The other thing I would say about that, obviously, for us, we are quite tired of hearing the conversation about how much welfare costs because, for example, no one ever says, do we need to cut the budget on Medicare? Like, do we need to actually start selecting how often people can go to the GP because Medicare is costing too much? We don't do that and we shouldn't do it with welfare either. Obviously, it should be the last thing to be cut, not the first, and it should be the first thing to be increased. As Kirsten went on to point out, the $10 billion or so that a proper job seeker rate increase would cost annually is dwarfed by some other government budget issues. The government's underspend on JobKeeper was $60 billion. So that's enough to pay for us to have unemployment payments above the poverty line for many years to come. But also let's think about it in the context of the hundreds of billions of dollars the government has given away in tax cuts over the last three years. So there's certainly money being splashed around. It's just not being splashed around to keep poor people alive. The bill that hit the parliament this week covered much more beside the job seeker rate change. Kirsten went on to detail some of the lesser known but equally insidious provisions included in the bill. The bill that has been put forward by the government does a couple of things. It does change the rate, but it also changes a few other very important things that were benefiting workers and unemployed people. One is that it cements in the reintroduction of waiting periods, and waiting periods are very inequitable. They really punish people who are trying to protect themselves from our welfare system by saving up as much as they can when they know, for example, that they're approaching the end of a contract and are going to go back onto a poverty payment. So instead of, you know, rewarding people for fiscal responsibility, which is what the government says we should all have more of, they force you to run down your savings for several months before they will put you onto an unemployment payment. We would like to see amendments to the amendment bill to prevent those waiting periods from coming back in. There's also something that's really important, which is called the seasonal worker preclusion period. And what that does is prevent anyone who's done seasonal work from accessing unemployment payments for six months after they return. So we've obviously heard a lot from the government about people not wanting to take up jobs in the regions and do harvest labour. But what they're not telling us, of course, is that that then means if unless you earn enough money to live for six months on top of the time you're out there, that you're not going to be able to access any kind of Centrelink support. We've got changes coming in to taper rates and income-free areas. The taper rate is the amount of money they'll take out of each dollar you earn over the income-free area, and the income-free area is how much you can earn before they do that. So what that's going to do is cost people 
who have some work, who have low-waged and insecure work, even more than this $100 cut that's coming in on 1 April. If you're a worker on JobSeeker and you earn $300 a fortnight, so only 150 bucks a week, really small number of hours in a casual job, you're going to actually lose an extra $8 a fortnight. So these changes are going to cost low-waged workers up to $180 come 1 April. So it's really shameful to see the other things they're squeezing into this bill. We're also calling for bigger change. We're asking the opposition and the crossbench to introduce amendments to tighten mutual obligations rules to make sure that the government can't just make those rules on a whim, which is what they can do now, and to extend support to people who've been excluded in the past, like migrants, like younger people whose parents earn higher incomes, and like people who are in a relationship where their partner earns income that affects their ability to get a payment. That's it for this week. Next week, Kirsten O'Connell guides us through the new wage subsidies and the sometimes perverse behaviours of the job network providers. We thank Kirsten for her time and her expertise. You're back with Annie and Jordan on Solidarity Breakfast. And thanks very much, Duncan Graham, for your Over the Wall episode this morning. Mm. Um, It leads in beautifully to our uh, uh, coverage of the Break the Poverty Machine. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've seen their wonderful T-shirt. It's a collectible. It's uh, got... A beautiful artwork, uh, Break the Poverty Machine. So whoever's done it, congratulations, you've done a great job. Mm. And uh, if you get a chance, you should go onto the LIFE uh, website or uh, AUWU, the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. Mm-hmm. And that's the Living Incomes for Everyone website yeah, in particular. Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, this is the campaign which, uh, as Don Sutherland, who's one of our regulars, was uh, emceeing the uh, uh, proceedings yesterday in Treasury Gardens as well, leading into a walk down the uh, Collins Street on the road with police escort mm. to uh, Exhibition Street down to the Co- uh, Fair Work Commission uh, where it, there were speakers from the RBTU and HOSPO Voice mm. uh, uh, as well as uh, earlier on you had uh, speeches from... Um, uh, a First Nations um, person, as well as uh, uh, the firecracker uh, Catherine um, Wilkes from the No Cashless Welfare Card. I tell you what, if you want to be scared, uh, the No Cashless Welfare Card, Cashless Welfare Card is the most dire piece of undermining of a uh, the rights uh, and um, future of uh, a huge, at least a third of Australians. It's so insidious. It's insidious mm. and it's uh, giving a free kick to corporates, mm-hmm. paying them to be the middle person between uh, the government's payments to uh, people for support. Uh, large amounts of money going off to places like Indu, yeah. uh, who are, uh, surprise, surprise, Kel Supri, uh, are... Uh, um, mates of uh, our Liberal Party and National Party uh, members. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's also um, 
news that uh, the latest incarnation of this card, which is now going to go to 20,000 more people, I think it was in uh, the Northern Territory, is now including the aged pension. Yes, that's going to be really scary for a lot of people because um, pensioners have very versatile spending. They actually have a lot of free time. Um, I think that they're going to see some particularly big backlash about it because the only other true thing about pensioners is they have a lot of free time and they tend to be a very vocal group. Well, let's hope so. Yes, absolutely. Well, there was a um, Fair Go for Pensioners uh, speaker, that's uh, John uh, Montero. He was uh, a calling to action. People that don't uh, shouldn't be sitting on their hands and just listening. They should actually be going and recruiting other people with knowledge around these insidious uh, uh, government policies coming out of the federal government. Oh, before I go on and play this stuff, there was a bit of local news that I had. Oh, I yes. went off to the doctors this week and I was sitting in... No, no, it sounds like a really <laughs> ridiculous thing, uh, very local. Tell me but, about your doctor's experience. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> it was fascinating because I was sitting there and the receptionist at this uh, local clinic... Uh, had uh, from the time I went in there to the time I left and apparently all day had been fielding calls from people who were after a uh, um, vaccination for COVID. Oh, right. Now, apparently our illustrious health minister, Federal uh, Hunt, had been on RN Mm -hmm. that morning Mm -hmm. saying that it was now available. Now, uh, it's not available. Yeah. And uh, people – and, you know, they, they were saying call back in two weeks' time. Actually, we don't know what's going on. Yeah. You know, that's what the local yeah. clinic is saying. So what you've got is the federal government uh, grandstanding and self-promoting when they haven't actually put into the hard work, because that would be going against the grain, of actually setting up the machine for something of this sort to actually happen. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's that classic image that we were all expecting of Scott Morrison holding the little Pfizer jab and the Astra, AstraZeneca jab with a big smile on his face right in the shot of a camera and say, look, we've got it, we've got it now, um, but it's only available for you know people who need it most first. Um, so, well, that's yeah, fair, it's that's such, fair. But, it's but, a deliberate misinforming. No, well, I, I'm not even sure that they're up to the game, really. That they're, you know, they're just uh, twits. And uh, and the thing about it is, you should spare a thought. <laughs> spare a thought for all those frontline people in reception areas. Yes. Because as one the nurse said to me, actually, there've been people coming in, fronting up, saying, "Give me my, oh, this is my rights." Yeah. Yeah. So they've Funny had that. to they've had to deal with. Aggression mm. in their workplaces mm. because of the uh, federal government's incompetence. Mm. That's my piece of. That was real news from the from the week. Absolutely, <laughs> unmediated. So now <laughs> let's go. <laughs> let's go off to break the poverty machine. Um, here's a couple of the uh, people and uh, what they had to say. Where is it? <laughs> Joys of live radio. Yep. Yeah. 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 Here I am carrying on like this. No, no, that's more than fine. Um, Yeah, look, I I actually had a run-in with a... um, Just on that, this week, uh, I'm still running into more people working in retail where I am encountering anti-vaxxers. Oh, goodness me. Oh, goodness me. So it's absolutely incredible that, um, you know, 
pre-COVID, it was... Oh, sorry, with, with COVID just coming in, it was the anti-maskers, and now we're still having to deal with the anti-vaxxers. Um, and, oh, God, we, we had one woman come in and start lecturing me and my colleague. Um, I'm just going to start telling them that I've got the jab now <laughs> and seeing where things go, just being like, yeah, i got the microchip in me. Bill Gates is great, <laughs> you know. I'm feeling the 5Gs, and... Um, I'm really keen to uh, see where this jab goes. Of course, none of that is true. I just want to put that out there now. Um, but yeah, I, I'm so over it. Of this younger generation, <laughs> you're just so flippant. Mm. Anyway, mm. here we go. ...of the social security system all too well. I was raised in it as a child in a single parent family. I've spent the better parts of my adult life in the system and I've been penalised by it too. Just the other day I was breached by my job agency. They claimed I didn't attend a meeting when they never called it. But I know my rights, so they reversed it. When we know our rights, we are powerful. And that's why they're scared when we stand up for ourselves and support each other to fight back. This is not a system for us. It's a system that achieves nothing but profits for private companies leeching off of the public to brutalize the most vulnerable people in society. It rewards the worst unemployment providers who suck up public money by hurting unwaged workers and generating profits from us when we find our own job. The workers in these companies are themselves subjected to awful workplace cultures, are overworked and face high burnout rates. Those of us who are unwaged, underemployed and insecure workers in the welfare system are forced to apply for jobs that aren't there and to complete bullshit tasks like training for how to dress for a job interview. It's demoralizing, insulting and condescending. During COVID, when these pointless activities were enforced, these companies lobbied the government and received massive payouts for doing absolutely nothing. At the same time, they lied, abused, harassed unemployed people to extract even more money from us. This is a system that was never designed to help a person. It's a tool used to oppress the working classes. We all have the same basic needs, yet the current system prevents many from accessing support. It discriminates against people on the basis of age, family situation, and visa status. Parenting payments and partner income tests were designed to oppress women and force them to rely on their male partners. And in 2021, these relics of the 20th century remain. Our welfare system traps young, older, and vulnerable people in dangerous environments, whether that be through the grossly low poverty payment or the continuation of partner and parental income tests. Unemployed workers are ex experts because they're subjected to this system. We know it inside out, and we know what it means to be affected by decisions over which we have little control. Decisions made by people who are, who are given power and money to ignore those they're supposed to represent. Unemployment is not a moral failure, but a structural failure. Asking for a hand up should not be treated with punishment and pain. The increase to working age payments during the pandemic showed how easy it is to keep people out of poverty. The government exposed the lie that it's necessary for us to live in the destitution they had previously forced us to accept. The $550 per fortnight COVID supplement was a response to a crisis. Unemployment and economic insecurity are crises and deserve the same response. It bought the most, most social security payments up to the Henderson poverty line of $80 a day, for the first time in decades. Yesterday, the government made its decision to try and crush us with poverty, and the parliament waved it through. This, this, uh, this after we went to Canberra to tell them loud and clear that our welfare system kills people 
and that cutting the rate would only make things worse. This week, I spent four days in Canberra protesting these cuts with activists and unionists and lobbying our so-called representatives, asking them to have a heart and to fight for a raise. I learned how little the legislators who make the rules that oppress us actually know about the poverty industry they've created. On 1 April, 2 million people will suffer a brutal cut of up to $180 a fortnight, and every single one of them relies on a poverty payment to survive. Hundreds of thousands more are likely to enter the system when JobKeeper ends in just two weeks. Low-waged workers trapped on unemployment payments will take the biggest cut, and mutual obligations will become even more punishing. As they do this, the government is using tools like JobMaker wage subsidy and gutting IR laws in a push to create even more precarious work that will see increasing numbers of unemployed people trapped in on unemployment payments long term. Right now, a person who works nearly 30 hours a week in a minimum wage job is still on welfare payments and still below the poverty line. Poor people in this country are tired. We are tired of being kicked by our own government. We are tired and angry about being used as a political football and an economic tool designed to hurt waged workers. Rather than, rather than as human beings with rights we, who deserve care, support and to be able to afford the basics need to live. The rights of waged and unwaged workers are intrinsically linked. I stand here in solidarity with those in waged work because I know my experiences in the welfare system are designed to undermine the wages and conditions of those who have a job. We need a call, the, we, what we need is action. We need justice for 250,000 people on JobSeeker who are in paid work but still trapped in poverty. Justice for the 250,000 people who are on JobSeeker and are disabled. For the 300,000 people over 55 who experience workforce discrimination and may never work again. We need a livable income guarantee, a job for everyone who wants one, and for control of communities to be returned to us. An attack on unwaged workers' rights is an attack on waged workers' rights. The choice they made this week to force millions of people to live on half the poverty line tells us what we already know, they can't, that we can't rely on heartless, calculating politicians to create the change we desperately need just because it's the right thing to do. We have to stand together and fight to force their hand to, make, to break the poverty machine. Thank you.
in this final part of final segment of this action today we are in front of the Fair Work Commission and the Fair Work Commission and I'll only say this once because I said it back in the park it is the site of many decisions made by commissioners and full benches and so on that are reinforcing the government's desire to drive down the industrial wage and make it overall closer to the poverty level. So we are here to learn more about what the union movement itself is working out about how to tackle this situation. And yesterday, we learned that the federal government, of course, has now given a green light to more wage theft. And in a couple of weeks is the deadline day for submissions for the annual wage review. And we can bet that the employers will be asking for nothing or maybe 0.5% increase in the minimum rate for wages, thus driving wages further behind price increases and closer to the poverty line. Our first speaker here is Geordie from Hospo Voice UWU and welcome to Geordie who is deeply experienced in the trials of wage theft and the struggles for a decent wage in the hospitality industry. So thank you very much, Geordie. Thanks, guys. Um, yeah, so I'm Geordie. I'm from Hospo Voice. I'm a barista. Uh, but before I'd like to begin, I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Um, as several speakers have already pointed out today, we can't be having these conversations about wage theft and exploitation and the welfare system without centering Indigenous voices because it's Indigenous communities that are bearing the brunt of these horrific policies. You know, the basics card being the perfect example of this. So I wanted to talk to you guys uh, today about the link between a casualized workforce, a weak welfare system, and the exploitation of workers. When workers have no job security, and there's no safety net for us to fall back on, we're forced to accept jobs that undermine our basic rights because our only other option is poverty. There is no better industry to examine how this dynamic plays out than hospitality. So almost 80% of the hospitality industry are casual workers. Um, so it should come as no surprise to all of you that uh, hospitality workers also represent the highest number of wage theft claims with fair work, and that's especially migrant workers. So uh, it's estimated that nationally about one in two hospitality workers are not being paid the national minimum wage. Um, this is not chance. It is not chance that the industry that has the highest levels of casual employment is also the industry that has the highest levels of wage theft and exploitation. These two things go hand in hand because we do not have a leg to stand on if we don't have access to secure work. We can't demand our basic rights. Uh, where, where a reason for termination must be provided with permanent work, employers can simply tell a casual worker that there are no shifts available at the moment when a complaint is made. And it's incredibly hard to prove this link unless your employer was silly enough to put it in an email. I can attest to this practice because it's happened to me twice in the last 12 months. At both cafes, I was promised award wages in the interview only to be sorely disappointed when I received my, my first paycheck. No payslip, of course. When I queried my pay, I was gaslit and told I didn't understand the award. I was made out to be a troublemaker. 
I was even told that speaking to other workers about their pay is illegal. Disclaimer, it's not illegal, it's a workplace, right? Um, both cafes suddenly didn't have any more shifts for me, yet refused to actually terminate my employment. I went into the pandemic in March last year, already unemployed, already having burnt through my savings, and I was already on the brink of mental collapse because one of my employers was threatening to sue me for defamation because I complained about wage theft. That's right, they would rather put money into a lawyer than actually paying their workers. And this is a fucking norm in hospitality and it has to change. And here's the thing guys, I'm one of the lucky ones. I was at rock bottom and I had my parents to lean on. But how many people don't have access to that? What about people who can't, who can't get money from their parents or who are in abusive situations? What about people with kids? What about migrant workers on temporary visas who don't have any family here, who have a language barrier and don't have a shitty Centrelink payment to fall back on? What about them? We can see what happens to them in the pandemic as well because they were left on the street. Our, our international students here like entirely fund our university sector, but the government is happy to turn a blind eye when they're exploited and told them to go home when they needed help the most. It's a disgrace. So, what can we do, guys? Join your union. I joined Hospo Voice and I was able to get advice about my rights at work. I received help in drafting an open letter to my employer on behalf of all staff outlining our rights. And of course, I was connected with other workers who were going through the same thing. Um, I even got to protest outside one of the cafes that fired me and I got to yell at my boss with a megaphone, which was great. <laughs> but most importantly, joining my union has opened my eyes to the power of the collective and the power that we have to actually transform the society that we live in. Because it's through organizing our workplaces that we can stand together and we can't be singled out when we demand our basic rights. It's through organizing our industries that we can change norms and we can demand industry-wide change to our working conditions. And it's through organizing the working class as a whole that we can demand that basic rights are met of every single human being, that we can demand that our politicians act on climate change, we can demand that pigs like Christian Porter don't get to keep their cushy jobs when they make women unsafe in the workplace. This is the power that we have as union members and this is the power that we have when we act as a collective, when we think as a collective. So, if you're here today, no matter what your job is, if you're unemployed, if you're a barista like me, if you're a nurse, if you're a teacher, whatever, join your union and start to think collectively. Because it's only through acting collectively that we can start to transform the society that we live in. Thank you. G'day, my name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on your dial. Ah, what a great speech. Uh, that was from the Break the Poverty Machine and uh, you're back with Annie and Geordie on uh, Solidarity Breakfast. And we're, as we promised, we've got David Glantz on the line. David is from uh, Unionists for Refugees as well as from RAC uh, and he's giving us an update on what's happening with uh, the um, incitement hearings against Chris Breen over a refugee rally held in, oh, what, such a long time ago, the mists of time. G'day, David. <laughs> hey, David. Hi, how are you going? Good. Yeah, the rally was back on Good Friday last year, so April the 10th. So <gasps> talking about almost, oh. almost a year. Yeah. And uh, Chris has been put through the, the legal mill. Uh, there were multiple sort of initial hearings and then there's been three proper hearings and the third one of those was this week 
and it's getting close to the pointy end because the lawyers basically were arguing their legal cases. So the evidence has been heard, um, the legal cases were being argued, and the magistrate has um, adjourned the case again until Monday, March the 29th, when she will hand down her verdict. So, so that's just over a week away, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Not too, not too far away. Mm. Uh, on, on 9.30 on uh, March the 29th, she'll uh, present, present her verdict. So what, the, what happened this week uh, was that the lawyers were essentially arguing uh, stuff which I didn't always follow in great detail because I'm not a lawyer, but they were arguing the legal base of, 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 the, um, of the argument for and against finding Chris guilty of incitement. So just to remind people who haven't been following this in as much detail as, as, uh, as I have, um, Chris, the charge against Chris is essentially that he uh, posted a Facebook event. And the Facebook event uh, was for a refugee action collective car convoy to circle the Manfa Hotel in Preston, where um, I'm sure everybody uh, following 3CR knows that there were more than 60 men held um, in detention, refugees, uh, they later were moved to the Park Hotel in Carlton, and some, but not all of them, have been freed into the community. But back in April last year, those 60 guys were very, very nervous um, that they were going to get COVID from the security guards. They're trapped in, uh, essentially in a prison where they could have to spend 23 hours a day in their hotel room. Um, and we wanted to go there and show them support and draw attention to... to to their their their, uh, their situation and and call for their release, uh, and the intention was for people to sit in their cars, um, very very socially distanced from each other, mm-hmm. and to drive around and sort of basically beat, beat their horns and 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 show the refugees that they that they had support. And the police moved in in massive numbers. They arrested Chris at his house. Um, and held him for nine hours in uh, Preston Police Station. They fined 30 people taking part in the car convoy, which is $50,000 in fines. Um, and we've been fighting back ever since, arguing that uh, what RAC was organising, it wasn't just down to Chris, uh, but what RAC was organising was um, legitimate, safe and necessary um, protests and showing care and compassion to the refugees. And that last point's important because Chris's defence has basically put up um, three separate arguments why Chris should be, uh, why the charge, um, uh, the verdict should be not guilty. And the first of those arguments is that people in taking part in the car convoy were showing care and compassion. And that's one of the reasons people were allowed to leave their homes. So if the magistrate accepts that argument, that people on the car convoy were showing care and compassion, then no crime was committed, and therefore Chris didn't incite a crime, and therefore uh, Chris is not guilty. So that's uh, one important argument that's been put forward. Then there are some technical arguments about the Facebook post, uh, when it was posted, and also whether uh, the prosecution has proven that it was the Facebook post that led people to leave their homes. Trust me, it's, it's a bit... It's a bit obscure, but it's important because these arguments could uh, could lead to a not guilty verdict. And then there are very technical arguments about what is it uh, in law 
that incitement actually consists of. And I'm not going to comment on that because, to be honest, it's way past my skill set. Absolutely, and I can respect that wholeheartedly. Um, Do you think that this would set a precedent of any kind? There's absolutely no doubt that the police are using the charge of incitement um, in order to scare people off from protesting. Um, They used it against Chris. They have actually used it against a number of anti-lockdown, anti-vax activists as well. They've clearly dusted it off um, from the 1958 Crimes Act and decided they want to give this one a run. (laughs) <laughs> because if if posting a Facebook event for um, a protest becomes something you can be found guilty of, then who's going to, who's going to ever post a Facebook event again? This is a threat to every union activist, organizer, and official who might call a picket line. It's a threat to uh, people from Extinction Rebellion who we know this week are going to be very active and out on the streets of Melbourne. Uh, it's a threat to those who might call up a march against sexism. I mean, imagine that you'd need such a thing. So anybody who's an activist would be looking over their shoulder and going, if I call this action, will I be found guilty or will I be charged and potentially found guilty of incitement? Well, it's interesting, David, uh, because incitement is um, a very interesting idea for them to use because it's usually only, and the magistrates actually pointed this out in Chris's uh, case, that it's usually only for crimes such as inciting murder. Yeah, it was was very interesting for me as somebody who's, you know, not a lawyer, to listen in and understand that incitement has been used around incitement to murder or incitement to kidnap some very heavy-duty stuff. So, you know, if I sat you down in the pub and said, I'll give you $5,000 if you kill somebody, I'm, I'm inciting you to murder. That's very serious stuff. That's a completely different situation from putting up a Facebook event encouraging people to take part in a COVID-safe process. So it, it was interesting... Incitement is not something that normally crops up in a magistrate's court, and that's one of the reasons why I think this case is dragged on, is that for all the people taking part, this is very new ground indeed. Um, This is not something that normally a magistrate would rule on. um, uh, But potentially, if Chris is found guilty, the police will uh, be enthusiastic about charging other activists with incitement down the track, and that could have a very serious chilling effect on the the right to protest. Well, it's interesting you should say that. You may not know this, but uh, the uh, young activist, student uh, activist for climate justice, had a rally on Friday, and they received letters from Commissioner Luke Cornelius uh, saying that... uh, um, that the organisers could be... uh, um, charged with incitement, carrying a maximum penalty of $20,000 for organising, and also that the people going there could be given a fine of a similar fine as your members, uh, 1000 uh, Let's see, what, where is it? $1,600 for breach, breaching a direction of the Chief Health Officer. And this is on the same night that uh, the doors were open for the uh, football down the road. Yeah, um, well, I, I didn't know about that particular threat. Um, that, that's very interesting and, and worrying to know about. Yeah, the whole process has been shot through with hypocrisy. At the time of the car convoy back in April last year, 
you could get in your car to go shopping. So you could go to Bunnings without wearing a mask, wander around, you know, sort of buy a couple of widgets and wrenches and, you know, whatever, spark plugs, whatever you needed. Uh, you could do that legally, but you couldn't leave the home in order to drive around and show solidarity with the refugees. And protest has been, I think, quite deliberately written out of the, the picture um, by the state government and, and through the chief uh, through the health directions, as if protest is something dirty and unacceptable. And as you say, thousands of people now are going to the football. Thousands um, uh, are uh, going through shopping centres. Mm-hmm. Quite rightly, the police stepped back and did nothing about the magnificent women's rally on Monday, where at least ten thousand people gathered in Treasury Garden. It would have been criminal for the police to attack that, um, that, that protest or the organisers. But it underlines the point. If it's, if it's OK for 10,000 people to protest safely with masks in the open air, then it's also safe for extin- Extinction Rebellion activists to do what they're doing as well. What applies to one should apply to all, absolutely. Thanks for giving us a roundup. We'll be uh, looking with uh, interested eyes on March the 29th, 9.30am, for the uh, outcome. Thanks very much, David. Okay, no worries.
A weak solidarity bricky team listener when, like all loyal true blue Aussies, we were bitterly disappointed. Oops, no, no, I meant usually excited at the elevation of our former minister for stuffing up the economy, Matthias Rotten Tudor, to CEO of the OECD, the Organisation for Economic Corruption and Disappointment. And in the quickest conversion since the road to Damascus, Matthias now plans to lead the world in the fight against climate change, if there is such a thing. The man who until recently, like until running for his new job, knew there was no such thing, but now urges us all to work with me in reducing emissions to zero by 2050 or the end of the world, whichever will come first. He franked his conversion by warning countries they should show caution over imposing carbon tariffs. That is, countries trying to do a bit about climate change, if there is, imposing carbon tariffs on goods imported from countries not considered pulling their weight on addressing the problem, if there is. Matthias now realises there is a problem, by the way. His latest problem being how to display his new awareness without doing anything about his new awareness. His first contribution to work with me, that punishing countries for doing next to nothing, is not working with him. Given that true blue Aussie would be right up there to in for copping tariffs. We need to allow space for individual countries to find the best possible way to contribute to the overall global effort he advised the world. And what is true blue Aussie's best possible way, Matthias? With my colleagues in Canberra, we have struck the balance the world needs between environmental concerns and economic concerns, ensuring we do not undermine the economy in our haste to address climate change if there is such a... Oh, no, no, of course, there is such a thing. You almost forgot. Let me finish. Balance. Perfect balance. And we are moving toward reducing fossil fuel emissions without affecting our important coal industry and our critical gas industry, which must be in our energy mix for the next several decades. Technical solutions such as burying our heads in the sand. So work with me. We certainly will, Matthias. You've inspired us. And while we've got you, any comment on the women's marches and rallies Monday? Disappointment. Looking at the crowd, disappointing to see quite a number of girly men. Although the major quality that won Matthias the big job was that he was not European. Well, sure, Belgium is, of course, but our Matthias is now a real true blue Aussie, and aren't we all so proud of him? Major quality, he came through the middle in this battle between Europe and the US of the UN of the US of the world over taxing US of tech giants. His major opposition for the job, a Swedish woman. The US of opposing any country taxing the profits made in that country by US of companies. Surely the mere fact that a US of corporation is prepared to operate in that country and make a neat little profit should be reward enough for both the country and the corporation. Why do these countries have to get so greedy? attempting to sabotage a very cosy bilateral business arrangement by wanting to tax the corporation's local profits. Taxes that belong in the U.S. of coffers. Well, hypothetically, because there's not much chance of them ever paying them, which must be why the U.S. of reserves the right to tax companies from every country in the world and drag them before its own courts and hit them with massive penalties. It's nothing but fair, reasonable and balanced.
The Troubaluwazi Business Profits Council's Jennifer Worcester for Workers Cot said the appointment would be good for Troubaluwazi's economy and business. A sort of a tautology. Anyway, now the OECD will benefit from his thoughtful and consolidative leadership. Jennifer was exhilarated, as were all of us. Exhilarated. Bet former big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull wishes Matthias had consulted him before the A2 brute stab in the back. That listener was our tribute to a troubler Aussie of whom we are all so proud. What a pity that in a week when Matthias' elevation is such good news for workers of the world that the employers were left devastated by a Senate crossbench that made them very cross rejecting sensible industrial relations reforms which the caring employers know would have made the lives of the workers they so care about so much better and fulfilled. But we'll return to that that distressing news. Women came out in such numbers across the country Monday that they gave the proof to the anthem Hear me roar in numbers too big to ignore which didn't stop the Minister for Women, um, Maurice Payne in the, and her non-misogynist leader, Scuttle Them Morlash Son, a.k.a. Scummo, from ignoring them. So it wasn't absolute proof they were too big to ignore. Indeed, poor Maurice and poor Scuttle Them were hurt, cut, extremely upset that the women had ignored them. It was incredibly discourteous to reject our offer made in good faith to meet one or two of them in our office, Maurice spoke for them. And we didn't ignore them. We watched them through our office window. Yes, Maurice, what would you have done if I had accepted your offer made in good faith? We would have listened to their arguments, told them we understood the problems, sounded and looked concerned, and then hoped the whole mess would go away. Wonder what Maurice sees as her job as Minister for Women. The message obviously got through to the boys will be boys at Wesley College who showed they understood all about sexual harassment and misogyny and sexism generally by practicing it, showing the value of a very, very expensive education, steering these fine young boys will be boys into the next generation of great corporate leaders, making wise decisions for all of us on the delicate flower that is the economy and the delicate mother that is the earth. But given her attitude to women, we know they'll show almost reverent respect for Mother Earth. Perhaps it was because of his not joining the rally that someone had the audacity, talk about disrespect, the audacity to call poor Scuttle them a bloody clot. We are talking about our great... Oh, I'm sorry, I think I got that wrong. Uh, Sorry, sorry, it was Scuttledem himself who said a particular vaccine would not cause a bloody clot. Yes, that's better, because I, I assume we, couldn't understand anyone calling Scuttledem a bloody clot. Those who claim the Caring Business Class Party has trouble with women, their quote, were put in their place by the Western Troubler-Wazzy election, after which women comprise 50% of the Caring Business Class Party members and could even get to 66%, with a woman guaranteed to be at worst deputy leader and a strong chance to be leader depending on the flip of the coin. So that puts the, that puts the critics in their place. Sadly, critical industrial relations reforms were not put in place despite the sundry chambers of profits coming out Tuesday and warning of massive job losses unless the reforms were adopted. Massive job losses, that's how important they were. 
how myopic can the crossbench be, let alone the bloody Socialist Party? The gravity was summed up in the Trubilawazi Capitalist Review, page one, lead story, opening sentence yesterday. Almost a year of negotiation and hard work has amounted to little. Oh, it's terrible, and we realise how terrible when we read the very thoughtful and balanced editorial. A precious golden opportunity for Trubilawazi workers has been lost. See, it was all about the workers whom they so care about. The Socialist Party, it said, had become the anti-worker party, existing mostly to protect the institutional power of its trade union paymaster. It didn't say, but we will say, it's evil trade union paymaster. The line inferring, or more than inferring, that trade unions are anti-worker. This leaves the government with virtually nothing to show from its good faith. Yes, how we feel for them, particularly Michaela Koch, the workers and the poor, sick, recovering Christian Portaloo. Workers who could have had high-performance cooperative workplaces and the wages they pay now end up in a system that institutionalises conflict driven by the lowest common denominator. And that from a source that knows there is no such thing as class struggle other than in the imagination of evil unions and their socialist party puppets. Apparently, the wonderful reforms would have solved that little problem of slow wages growth that has so been concerning caring employers who just couldn't see a solution. And now the opportunity is lost. Poor caring employers. The Caring Business Class Party opposition in Spring Street are so high profile that a bloke ran for leader this week who I'd never heard of until he announced his challenge, an insignificant event I raised simply to, to, to note, as I'm sure we all noted, that the challenger's name, a former a copper, is Batten. Perhaps Batten should have used it on the incumbent and he might have knocked him off by knocking him out. Although that would have raised the difficulty of determining whether he was knocked out or just normal. Finally, our Minister for Fossils, Angus Tailings, tells us we can't rush too quickly toward renewables because that would upset the fine balance and make fossils even less profitable. That's for domestic consumption. But when the world suggests Trubilawazi isn't pulling its weight, those tariffs Matthias opposes, he boasts... We are meeting our commitments in a canter, partly because Trublawazi, he boasts again, has the highest rate of rooftop solar in the world, a development to which his and his government's contribution is roughly minus 100%. Top marks for basking in. Good morning. Behind these prison walls, there's a man who's won awards. For the work that he has done. Tune in at 9.30am Thursdays to hear a special series, Home Run for Julian. Join James Brennan as he tracks the campaign to bring Julian Assange back to Australia, starting on the 18th of March. This special four-part series will feature interviews from Julian's dad, John Chipton, and other tour participants. Follow the convoy from Melbourne through regional towns in New South Wales and Victoria and back to Melbourne. Thursdays, 9.30 till 10am. Home run for Julian on 3CR. Is someone who is a hero. 
to whistleblowers everywhere. FreeCR's Binary Bardstein broadcast is airing seven hours of trans and gender-diverse radio in the lead-up to 2021 Trans Day of Visibility and as part of BiHealth Awareness Month. Bringing the noise to the Western gender binary. Tune in on Sunday 21st of March between 12 noon and 7pm to hear trans and gender diverse voices busting binaries including in areas of art, culture, politics, well-being and resilience. Towards the Transgender Day of Audibility. For more information head to 3cr.org.au forward slash binary busting. The 3CR Binary Busting Broadcast Project is financially supported by a Pride Events grant from the Victorian Government. And you're back with Annie and Jordan on Solidarity Breakfast. And on the phone, we have Rosaria Bercelli from XR. G'day, Rosaria. How are you going, Jordan? Yeah, not too bad. Um, look, we've been uh, having a bit of a chat about some of the uh, upcoming events um, uh, for XR a little bit earlier in the program. Um, would you like to give us the rundown on the Autumn Rebellion? Yes, I'd love to do that. Thank you. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we're going to be in the Carlton Gardens all week from Monday through to Sunday. We've got things happening from 7.30 every morning uh, through to about uh, 7 p.m. every evening next week. Um, uh, We're starting Monday off with um, uh, bringing attention to the climate crisis and linking it to the health crisis. So we're having what we call a die-in at Parliament House. So we're starting that um, on 7.30 a.m. on Monday. Uh, and from there, we will, be, we will have actions probably two or three times a day for the rest of the week. Some of the highlights include um, a Scott Morrison Barbecue the Planet event, which will be <laughs> on Thursday. Um, yeah, <laughs> that was pretty funny. Um, we like to put... Um, we like to put sometimes a comedic or um, a colourful spin on things because we do believe that what we're dealing with is really tragic and um, and urgent and terrible. But we can't just constantly stay in those um, dreadful feelings. So we try to sometimes... Um, and I think we, we, we achieve our aim to, to put, um, you know, a bit of a, a funny spin on things. Uh, we're also having that same day on Thursday, the 25th of March, we've got a march against um, Murdoch, um, which, as you know, um, News Corporation and the Murdoch papers tend to deny the climate and uh, are very conservative about um, uh, politics and they tend to support the fact that the government, rather than moving towards a green recovery, wants to move towards and is funding a um, fossil fuel-led recovery. So um, there's some of the highlights. Um, We're also having a women's march next Saturday. And um, I think Extinction Rebellion is famous in Melbourne for its um, dancing protest called Disco Obedience. 
so we'll be having the disobedience on Sunday. And, of course, we want everyone to come along um, and join us as much as possible because we are in a climate emergency. Yeah, absolutely. So that's um, that really is a whole week of action. Um, and your choices in terms of what you're actually protesting is really diverse. You know, you're actually, it's not just environmental protests. You're looking at media diversity. You're looking at um, uh, issues regarding fuel choices. And um, I guess the one thing that I always hear about XR um, in particular is that these are not your typical traditional protests and rallies in the same way that the March for Justice was or the Invasion Day was. Um, and I guess some people prefer those styles of traditional clashes, but XR has always favoured this sort of modern creativity. Um, could you just elaborate on that and tell us a bit about what the philosophy of XR's protesting um, really is? Yeah, so um, so as you know, well, maybe your listeners don't know because I think I've, I've noticed that um, although some of us are really attuned to the um, existence of the Extinction Rebellion, um, it's still a relatively young movement. We've been around in Australia since about the middle of 2019. So we're, but we are a global movement um, and we use nonviolent direct action to put pressure on governments everywhere to take strong action on climate. So if we were to think about the single issue that um, concerns Extinction Rebellion, it would have to be the climate emergency. However, as we know, in um, in the current system that we live in, nothing exists separate from other things. And... In actual fact, the climate emergency is brought about by a whole um, system, I would say the capitalist system, which is also responsible for patriarchy and um, for many of the injustices that um, affect uh, all of us and and that people, you know, tend to uh, strike against or want to protest against. So um, we believe that um, things are all interconnected and the things that have brought about the climate emergency have also are also responsible for many of our other social injustices um, but uh, and so we try to um, we try to uh, represent these things sometimes we do them as kind of single actions for example uh, last year in November, I organised an action in the city which was called End Black Friday and it was about ending um, uh, consumerism, mass consumerism. Um, But it's very much, uh, as we know, mass consumerism is very much connected to the climate emergency and so is the case with all the other things that we choose to, to focus on in terms of injustices. Does that explain things yeah, a little yeah. bit? Absolutely, yeah. I, I, I was uh, really keen to follow this up because uh, it's quite clear that uh, in your approach and also because of the climate emergency, as it were, that um, it is about uh, the system that uh, uh, that humans find themselves in at the moment. That, uh, But with your demonstrations and approach, there's a couple of things that come uh, become out. One is that you're not conflict-focused 
And also, given that the uh, police in Victoria uh, at the moment and other parts of the country are focusing on using incitement laws, you're, uh, you're decentralised, aren't you? Most definitely, um, yes. So um, we, one of our um, uh, ten principles and values is that we are autonomous. Uh, and that uh, we can, uh, a group of us can decide to take action. We do act in groups rather than individually, but a group of us can take action on behalf of the movement, providing that we stick to the values and principles and that we're going for the key three demands of our movement, which I haven't talked about yet, but we do have three demands that guide everything that we do. Okay, tell us. The first of these is, Yes, tell the truth. So we want the government to tell the truth about the climate. Stop pussyfooting around and saying that, oh, you know, we can wait until 2050. Um, 2050 will be fine. We'll all be fried by then. The science is telling us that. I have never seen so many um, freaked out scientists, climate scientists, who are, you know, displaying um, extreme symptoms of anxiety because of the terrible truths that they are facing every day in their work. So we want the government to start telling the truth about the climate. And then our second um, demand is to act now. In other words, having told the truth, they have to act as if that truth is real and have to do things that um, follow on from... Uh, having accepted that truth rather than going off and funding fossil fuels. Uh, there are plenty of um, renewable energy initiatives and ideas that we have in Australia. Why aren't they following those up? They must. And uh, finally, the third uh, demand is that we have a citizens' assembly. We believe that we cannot leave these the important... Um, the, the um, important uh, charter or aim of, uh, you know, changing our ways of doing things so that we can move towards a green recovery. Uh, and we believe that um, uh, democracy needs to, to be um, strengthened by using um, citizens' assemblies. In other words, groupings of people who are um, elected randomly to represent us on specific issues um, that are then advised by experts and can make the decisions that we need to make to turn this uh, boat around. That's fascinating. This is very similar to uh, what they have instituted in Venezuela. Right. Well, they do have I, a... I don't know anything about that. <laughs> that's okay, yeah. Uh, no, no, that's interesting. Uh, so new, form, <laughs> new forms of government. Uh, in actual fact, uh, uh, democracy is under attack and uh, uh, obviously the environment and uh, you've uh, designated X Rebellion has, uh, Extinction Rebellion has quite clearly um, marked this as the line in the sand. Hmm. Uh, yes, yes. We, we do need to strengthen our democracies. At the moment, um, they are definitely under attack. 
One thing that I wanted to um, jump out at you just to close things out. On the Friday, the 19th of March, you may or may not have heard about this, um, there was uh, Victoria Police had sent uh, fairly threatening letters to climate activists with charges of incitement. Um, And we've sort of been discussing incitement through today's shows. Uh, It seems to be a crime that uh, Victoria Police have really dusted off and um, seem to be brandishing a bit more coming forward. That being said, they're not doing this with all protests necessarily. Uh, We didn't really see a heavy crackdown at the March for Justice rally nor the Invasion Day rally. What do you think... Well... This this is obviously a burgeoning threat for any kind of protest action, of demonstrations, of strike movements. How do you see this potential threat affecting the Autumn Rebellion through the week? Well, um, you know, we, we um, of course, we always, when we do our planning, we do contingency planning and we try to take into account anything that might affect uh, our... Um, our actions. Uh, however, uh, you know, short of a, another, um, you know, serious and strict lockdown, we're going ahead. Uh, but, you know, as I said earlier, our our strategy, our key strategy, is nonviolent direct action. We've chosen that strategy because the science tells us <clears throat> that it has been the most effective uh, at gaining. Uh, any of the rights that we've been able to achieve. Not, I'm not just talking about in Australia, but around the world. So the women's movement, the black rights movement, etc. Um, so, um, you know, our, our strategies in, and in everything we do, we are guided by the principles of non-violent direct action. So, you know, if the police um, want to charge us, that's fine. I mean, we, you know, one of our key aims is to have as many arrests as possible so that we can clog up the system and, um, and you know, bring the government down in that way. <laughs> That's a good uh, level of optimism, um, actually. Yeah, I really yeah, like yeah. that. No, yeah. no, there's precedence to this, too. Uh, the uh, business that happened in America where when the boys said no about going to Vietnam, mm-hmm. um, they did clog up the, the system. Uh, how do our listeners get involved if they want to? if they can. Yeah, so um, I think the best way is to, because we're on radio and I can't show you anything, the best <laughs> way is for them to go to um, uh, osrebellion.earth, so that's uh, A-U-S-R-E-B-E-L-L-I-O-N.earth, and uh, that's our um, uh, national web page. And uh, there is a banner at the very top of that that um, points you to how to get involved in any of the actions. But um, if people don't have access to the internet or they, you know, prefer to do things in person, come along to Carlton Gardens. We will have an outreach or information um, station and we'll be able to um, tell you how to get involved. In fact, that would probably be the best way because... Every day we will have um, training and preparation for actions and we do like to take care of each other and take care of other people who are supporting us. And so the best way to do that is to um, brief people and train them so that they know exactly what they're getting in for. 
Thanks for talking to us today, Rosaria. Thanks, Rosaria. Thank you very much, Annie and Jordan. Hope to see you next week at the Autumn Rebellion. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yaru country, and it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. Well, that was interesting, I'll have to say. Yeah, um, absolutely. I, I'm really keen to find out more about how people uh, organise and uh, get their message across in an effective way. I know that uh, at the um, break, the poverty machine, they saw uh, the amount of people that were there was a bit, uh, merely a beginning to the growing of their, uh, their organisational power. Um, bringing together more and more organisations who have got similar views leading up to the budget, that's uh, the next budget. Which yes, is when's that coming? Uh, well, I don't know. Actually, uh, it's probably, uh, isn't it normally in May? And, uh, oh, true. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we had the last one delayed till October because of COVID. Yeah, that that's it, right. So. And then they have a mini budget a bit later on. Yes. Uh, there was discussion at some point that, that we might be getting a federal election and never come too soon here uh, this year. But uh, now that uh, various things have clogged up the Liberal National Party uh, uh, federally, um, they're now talking about uh, 2022. So... Hmm. Um, Anyway, well, look, the, the, they'll hold on to power for as long as possible. If you're, you know, if you're a conservative government, that's that's what you do. But this actually alludes to something which was happening recently um, regarding the Western Australian election and that absolutely landslide result. Right now, polls are generally favouring incumbents, and the Liberal Party in Western Australia completely misread the mood. Um, I think. A lot of people in particular point to the collapse of the one nation vote in rural electorates. And it actually speaks to a point about who is the biggest character in the room. You look at um, the Palm United Party or you look at one nation or even um, more moderate candidates like um, the independent in Indi. All of these are big characters that connect very locally and very um, down-to-earth. They, they, they like to take a common-sense view in some fashion. Um, Mark McGowan really cut through in those rural electorates solely because he was suddenly the biggest character in the room. Why? He was on the presser every single day. That, that I firmly believe, is something which was contributing very greatly to the result of the uh, Western Australian election. Um, that sustained the vote, and then there was that massive swing which continued to happen through that. Well, that argument uh, stands true in that um, Morrison, who I'll have to say is one of the most feeble uh, um, intellects that I think I've ever come across, mm. um, and that's just a personal opinion, um, is uh, on the press every day. And we have uh, a... Um, I mean, we have a whole lot of corruption issues and we also have a whole lot of systemic issues mm. that have been um, 
brought brought to bear by this federal Liberal National Party, uh, which is really quite disturbing. For and I mean, we even have a, a, an Attorney General who has been playing fast and furious with uh, various parts of our legal system in the sense that, uh, for example, the, there's been appointments uh, to various parts of the organisation of government mm-hmm. uh, illegally, uh, the legal infrastructure, who have been... Uh, there was, in a particular case, uh, appointees couldn't be put into those roles unless they'd had five years of experience in that particular jurisprudence, right? But the person that was actually appointed by the Eternal General only had a year and a half. Mm. Now, this is mm. this is really uh, blurring the lines of um, efficiency and... Uh, uh, accountability, right? Yeah. So when yeah. they talk about uh, 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 the rule of law, it's quite clear they're a little bit uh, selective about which part of the law they like to follow. Mm. Um, and and the thing about Morrison is that uh, people talk about uh, he, he even after all these corruption issues and a whole range of other things like. Uh, even even down to the lack of proficiency in regards to the um, uh, vaccination stuff, all the rest of it, his approval rating and and the rape allegations in Parliament and the response, his approval rating apparently only went down two percent to sixty percent. Yeah. Right now, Morrison has an approval rating according to some polls of sixty percent, which is gobsmacking. Mm. considering uh, how ineffectual he's been as a leader. Do you suspect that those polls have a limited degree of truth? Uh, no, I think it p- plays to your argument that he's the most uh, oh, he's, a recognisable he's so character. That, he's, um, he's present all the time. Now, yeah. Albanese, for example, people all like to make fun of Albanese, right? Now, it's because they barely see him. Yeah, but that's so much to do with the press. There you go. Da 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 da. Anyway, we're coming to the end of the program. That's just our little bit of bluster for the end of the day. To mm. uh, when you talk, think about Albanese, whatever you think about Albanese and his track record and all the rest of it, just take into consideration that um, who it is that's spreading the gossip. Absolutely. And what actually was said. Yeah. I think that, that <laughs> especially because we actually had that recording from Albanese on Stick Together, if you were tuning in at 7am this morning, uh, power to you for sticking with us for two hours for now. Um, but yeah, if you were listening to Albanese, he does actually speak very strongly. The problem is we have a press that only construes the worst view of any critical opposition, be it Labour, be it Greens, be it Vic Sock, anyone at all. So that's something we've all got to bear in mind as we continue to fight on through this. Um, Till then, I guess we'll have to see how the Autumn Rebellion goes through this week. Um, much to be said about the future. Yeah, yeah. Um, the uh, Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents, and I might have called it a bit early, actually. We've still got about... Usually we're running right to the edge, um, and uh, in actual fact, I'm... Uh, We've got four minutes to go. No, now. you're fine. You're fine. Um, if you want, let's finish with um, some Paul Oakes. Uh, I think I've got "Love Me, I'm a Liberal" in there, which is um, a really <laughs> lovely track. So, <laughs> should we close it. out with that? I think um, that feels appropriate for all the discussion about protesting and, um, um, you know, real feverish campaigning. Yeah, that's what yeah. I want to hear. 
No, no. No, that love be, me. I'm a liberal. That's okay, it. Let's go yeah, for it. Give it a go. Um, see you next week, folks. I cried when they shot Medgar Evers. Tears ran down my spine. And I cried when they shot Mr. Kennedy. As though I'd lost a father of mine. But Malcolm X got what was coming. He got what he asked for this time. So love me, love me, love me. I'm a liberal. I go to civil rights rallies and I put down the old DAR. I love Harry and Sidney and Sammy. I hope every colored boy becomes a star. But don't talk about revolution. That's going a little bit too far. So love me, love me, love me. I'm a liberal. I cheered when Humphrey was chosen. My faith in the system restored. And I'm glad that the commies were thrown out from the AFL-CIO board. And I love Puerto Ricans and Negroes as long as they don't move next door. So love me, love me, love me, I'm a liberal. The people of old Mississippi should all hang their heads in shame. I can't understand how their minds work. What's the matter? Don't they watch Les Crane? But if you ask me to bust my children, I hope the cops take down your name. So love me, love me, love me. I'm a liberal. I read New Republic and Nation, and I've learned to take every view. And I've memorized Lerner and Golden, and I feel like I'm almost a Jew. But when it comes to times like Korea, there's no one more red, white, and blue. So love me, love me, love me, I'm a liberal. I vote for the Democratic Party, they want the UN to be strong. I attend all the Pete Seeger concerts. He sure gets me singing those songs. And I'll send all the money you ask for. But don't ask me to come on along. So love me, love me, love me. I'm a liberal. Sure, once I was young and impulsive, I wore every conceivable pin. Even went to socialist meetings, learned all the old union hymns. Ah, but I've grown older and wiser, and that's why I'm turning you in. So love me, love me, love me, I'm a liberal. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.